I ended up with four or five white supremacists in my group. So I was very intrigued, but as a Jew, I was also a little bit scared. From the Jewish Food Society, I'm Amanda Dell, and this is Schmaltzy. Personal stories about food and the people behind them. Today on Schmaltzy, we have investment banker turned art producer Marc Azoulay. Marc is the studio director and producer for the French artist JR. He has produced countless projects, including Ellis, a short film starring Robert De Niro, a large-scale installation at the U.S.-Mexico border, and the global photo series Women Are Heroes. Mark will share an unforgettable personal story that he told at a recent Shabbat dinner we hosted together in Brooklyn. Then we'll chat about how he honors his Moroccan-Parisian roots, how art can change the world, and so much more. Here's Mark. I have a dream job. I work with French artists and friend JR, and we travel around the world to create public art installations. We engage with all different kinds of people, from homeless to movie stars, from refugees to ballerinas, lots of kinds of people. We create art as an excuse to bring people together. For instance, we organize a picnic at the border between the US and Mexico, or we built a moon on top of a favela. In any given year, I could be traveling for half of the time. So I never expected that one day I would end up in a maximum security prison working with incarcerated men there for life. In October 2019, we were invited in a prison in Tehachapi, California. JR had the idea to paste a whole concrete yard with the help of men incarcerated for 10 to 20 years, often since they were teenagers. Not the most welcoming environment, but also a test to see if art really can have an impact anywhere. It was the very first project of its kind. The prison authorities told us they tried everything, starting by locking them up and throwing the key away, but it hadn't worked. So they invited us in, because after all, why not try art? We were a team of a dozen, and there were about 30 inmates and a few staff. On the first day, we met the participants. Many of them were covered in gang tattoos and were quite menacing. So we started working groups and they could choose who they wanted to work with. And to my great surprise and fright, I ended up with four or five white supremacists in my group. So I was very intrigued, but as a Jew, I was also a little bit scared. You know, where to put myself in that situation? One of those men, Kevin, even had a swastika tattooed on the cheek. That was quite dreadful. If I had met him on the street, for sure I would have crossed on the other side. But here I was, stuck with him and his friend for four days. He'd been there for 15 years since he was 22 years old. How could someone decide to willingly tattoo the most hateful sign on their face? I wasn't reassured. But as we started working and talking, I realized that most of these men already had changed inside the prison and that the hateful sign that they carried on their bodies and their faces didn't reflect who they actually were. I was trying to exchange ideas and understand. And I also realized that they were all very present because most of them had never seen their own smartphone because they'd been in prison since before they even existed. So I got bold and I asked them about the symbol of each tattoo. And I realized that most of the tattoos are 
made in prison. They're part of the gang culture and they're also somehow a means of protection for them. It still took me three days before I decided that I would share that I was Jewish. The day after, a guard told me that some of the men had thrown away their hateful literature after talking to me. So I really connected with a couple of them, including Kevin. Jera was allowed his phone inside the prison. And so Kevin went on social media and shared publicly that if he could remove his tattoo, he would. A couple of weeks later, the project was released and we decided that we needed to go back to the prison. In a previous project with JR, we worked with Art Spiegelman, the author of Mouse. And when I told him the story, he decided to sign a book for Kevin. And so in February 2020, we went back to Tehachapi and I brought the book to Kevin. And he read it that same night and he came back to me very ashamed. And it felt so genuine that I could only believe him. So there was a stark contrast between his eyes and his face. Sharing my Judaism with people from all walks of life is a big part of my identity. I've lived in a few countries and I've been invited to or organized a lot of Shabbat dinners every Friday because for me, sharing a home-cooked meal and learning different traditions is very important. That's why you're all here, actually. I told Kevin that I would invite him and have him over for Shabbat when he was out. Obviously, my wife wasn't too happy and delighted at the idea, but I knew deep inside me that I could trust him. COVID happened a few days later and we could not go back to the prison, but I maintained a relationship with Kevin through weekly letters and phone calls. I initiated another project, more personal, where I asked him to gather letters from different incarcerated men around the theme of home. What would home mean to them when they were stuck in the prison while the rest of the world was stuck at home? And it was very, very moving and powerful to get all these letters. We kept sending each other books or thoughts. And what was very funny is that he was calling me for every major Jewish holiday, which was very ironic. In November 2021, he finally got released after 17 years in prison. And so we decided to go and spend his last day inside together. And then for the following day, as promised, take him to a tattoo removal clinic where a Jewish doctor initiated the process. It took him a year to get out of parole. And as soon as it became possible, we flew him to New York. It was in December last year. So I could host him for his first Shabbat. Seeing him with a kippah on his head was definitely a strange feeling. Of course, the tattoo has almost disappeared by now, but I told him to put a lot of makeup on whatever was left because in the streets of New York, it wouldn't fly so well. On every Shabbat, we ask every guest, and we'll ask you, to share the highlight of your week. I learned that tradition from a rabbi when I first arrived in New York, and I love it because everyone shares a little bit. And Kevin, thought that it was a very safe space because everyone shared something and felt a little bit vulnerable. So for him, the Shabbat dinner was the highlight of his first trip to New York. Last week, Amanda published on Jewish Food Society, my mother's recipes. And Kevin wrote to me right away to say he's going to try and cook my mother's recipes and that he enrolled in a challah baking class in his community. <laughs> and so maybe next time I go to California, I'll actually go for Shabbat at Kevin's house.
Mark, thank you so much for sharing your story. It was very, very powerful. And thanks for joining us here today. I'm excited to be here. I loved it in your story how you ended by giving us an update about Kevin and all his Jewish activities that he was getting into. So are you guys still in touch on a regular basis? He sent me a message for Passover, like he does for every Jewish holiday. And then every Shabbat too, he sends me a message. What does his messages say? Just like, hi, happy Passover. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) No, and he's curious about it. And he teaches me about Christianism too. So I learn a lot. He sent me some explanations about Easter and then we exchange about Judaism. Beautiful. I read that only three times in each century does Passover, Ramadan, and Easter intersect. And this happened this year. So I felt like that was a pretty remarkable Yeah, very holy, very holy time, I guess. (laughs) I felt that the world kind of needed some unity maybe this year. And it was really nice that so many people were celebrating all at the same time this year. Yeah. And and the good thing is the end of Passover for Moroccan Jews is called Mimuna Mm -hmm. and became like a national holiday in Israel. And we eat a lot of pastries and Mm -hmm. Oriental cakes. And because it's also Ramadan, I was in Spain to visit my grandmother and it was easy to find the traditional honey baked goods that you get for the end of Passover. So for anyone who doesn't know, explain to us the tradition of Mimuna and why it's celebrated and how you celebrate. I guess it's how you break Passover after eight days or seven days in Israel of not eating hametz. So some people have a sweet couscous and we have a lot of different Moroccan pastries. And then you go to different houses and every house has a different feast. At least that's what we were doing in Paris. And I guess in Israel, it's also like this. And I only realized it was a thing the first time I spent Passover abroad, which is when I lived in Australia when I was 23 or 24 years old. And I was with Ashkenazi and they had pizza. Uh, (laughs) And for them, it was a big thing. But for me, it was a bit... Disappointing. Mumuna sounds way more fun (laughs) and more delicious. I mean, pizza sounds like a good treat too. So tell me a little bit more about what some of the specifically like Moroccan Jewish customs were growing up in Paris and what that was like. So my parents came to Paris when they were in their early 20s from Morocco where they grew up. And so the tradition comes through food a lot. And so Shabbat dinners every Friday night. And then every high holiday also has specific dishes. And did you experience any feelings of being other or anti-Semitism when you would go outside of your community? Not really, because I grew up in a pretty open-minded community. And because there were so many Jews, I'd never felt being different. I didn't really feel anti-Semitism, but yeah, I was always told not to wear a kippah in the street, for instance. And I know that I was pretty lucky where I grew up, but it wasn't the same for everyone. And do you think anything has changed in current day Paris, like for the better or for the worse? I left Paris 16, 17 years ago. I lived in different places. And from afar, I saw that most of my Jewish friends growing up became more religious. I could tell that communities are closing themselves a little bit, 
which is a bit strange and sad maybe. So yeah, my friends tend to be more religious, but there's a lot of Jews that are not and that are open. So why do you think these friends of yours became more religious? So it's not only them, I think social media made that everyone is talking to themselves and everything that happens in Israel resonates very strongly in France because the media definitely has a role in there. So people tend to wrongly identify and it creates an animosity, I believe, within the French society. That's very interesting because we often talk about how there's a resurgence of being Jewish online, and it's even kind of cool to post about your Shabbat meals or your holiday meals or what rituals you're doing. So the fact that you are saying that these communities on social media are only talking to themselves is quite interesting to me. Maybe I feel more at home in New York than Paris. So I moved to New York 12 years ago from Rio to work with JR, with the artist JR. He was awarded the TED Prize in 2011. And so he invited me to come and open a studio here and start an art project. He's called Inside Out and it's still going 12 years later. And obviously we've expanded to many different things. So art wasn't what you studied or what you originally intended to get into. I read that you were really in banking. Yeah, my first job was an investment banker in Sydney, Australia. What was that like? <laughs> <laughs> Very different. No, I studied in a business school. It was more natural to me to go to consulting or banking. And then I tried and I realized it wasn't really for me. I was, <laughs> I was a little bit bored. So I moved to Brazil where I worked in a startup company in tourism for about a year. And then through life and through passion too, I met JR and got really inspired and so he decided to invite me to join the project, and that's how I started. For anyone who's not super familiar with JR's work, can you tell us a little bit more about it and what it's like working with him? Sure. So what we do is large-scale public art installations all around the world. It could be the whole side of a building, or it could be the whole courtyard at the Louvre, or a whole prison yard, or it could be a scaffolding at the border between the U.S. and Mexico. And he started bringing art to places where there was no art. And art is about raising questions. And so by putting something very big in the public space, people cannot really ignore it and just have to ask questions. And the more the project evolves and the more we see art as a tool for hope, and it's an excuse really to get people to talk to each other. So if you see something very unexpected in the street, you're going to ask the person next to you, what's that about? And then the conversation is created. And that's what it's all about. And what's the creative process? Because I know JR uses a lot of photography off in his work. What are the building blocks to getting to a finished piece? It's photography, definitely. But he works with definitely a wide range of medium. It's either a place that's very intriguing or it's either a subject matter you know, so last year he went to Ukraine right at the beginning of the war to carry a 150 foot long banner. That's the portrait of a little girl that was a refugee and it was in Poland. And the idea is a hundred people from Ukraine gathered to carry the image in Lviv. And that became the cover of, of Time magazine. 
And initially it was difficult to imagine why would people need art in the time of war, but it's actually people from Ukraine that really reached out to JR. Like we want art, we need this. And we're still doing action on the ground since. Wow. I'm the daughter of two artists and I've seen a lot about their process and how much goes into it. So I'm just so curious about logistically how you make these happen and is that part of your job? So we're a big team between a few countries working. It's really a team effort. And you plan in English, in French, in it's international? Yeah, it's international. It's both okay. English, French, you know. <laughs> we also have a school in Brazil. That's because the idea also is to bring continuity to projects. So if we go somewhere and do an art action, then what is the impact and what is the long-lasting impact? So sometimes it translates by building a school in Brazil or by developing a, an art program in the prison or these kind of things. It's extremely inspirational. We heard a little bit in your story about the fact that Jewish Food Society had the immense honor of cooking with you and your mom at your house in Brooklyn and your wife, Marie, and we preserved these recipes and your family story on Jewish Food Society. Your mom is such a force. <laughs> yes, she is. We loved hanging out with her. When we were doing our session, we learned that she's an incredibly gracious host and her door is always open. And you said that you never knew who was going to like turn up at your table. Exactly. And I guess we're trying to replicate that as well yeah. here in Brooklyn. I always have an open door policy and everyone could join for Shabbat. So when I arrived in New York, I realized, although there were so many Jewish people, I wasn't getting invited to Shabbat dinners, but I didn't know many people. And so I decided to organize my own. And I realized also that maybe it wasn't a tradition for everyone as it was important to me. And because everyone is from somewhere else, at least we could have a sense of going home and sharing a home-cooked meal. Sometimes people are not Jewish. Jewish whatever is just about being together and sharing stories and eating good food. So was that something that kind of struck you when you came to New York? Yeah, I mean, in France, it's the same. It's like there's so many Jews somehow. You know, if you travel and you go to small communities and you show up at synagogue, then people will wonder who you are and they will invite you for Shabbat. But if you go to a synagogue in Paris or in New York, I mean, it's, it's anonymous. Different. Exactly, it's more anonymous, exactly. Once I got invited to Rosh Hashanah there in Tunisia, we could only communicate with a few words of French and Hebrew, but it was a deeply moving experience because they were sharing with me everything they had and they had nothing. And just because I was Jewish, you know? Yeah. So we know you stand for Shabbat and you love it, <laughs> <laughs> but I want to know what you think about this recent interest in Shabbat. There was a huge New York Times article about Shabbat that you were mentioned in. And why do you think that now it's newsworthy? People need to slow down a little bit. And so maybe it's ancient wisdom of, you know, stopping everything for 24 hours and people need these real-life connections at a time when everyone is connected online and going very fast. But I guess being present together around a table and then maybe putting your phone away for a few hours is actually something that people realize is important. So you think it's about what Shabbat stands for, which obviously is a day of rest and connecting. 
And that's what is part of this interest And in also Shabbat. people probably value more maybe their own identity or look for their roots a bit more. And why is it important for you to preserve this tradition of Shabbat here in New York and with your new family? Are your parents surprised in any way about this interest that you have in it? To them, I guess, not a question because I'm just perpetuating the tradition, even though we're doing it more in our own way. Mm -hmm. So I guess they're pretty happy about it. <laughs> uh, but also, maybe it was preserved more. You know, it's only my parents' generation that came from North Africa, so the traditions were more vivid. But in the U.S., most Jews came at the end of the 19th century or the beginning of the 20th century. So it's already been a few generations and there's been more assimilation. And then that's why also it was lost and now it's being found again. I want to definitely go back to art for a moment and talk about the Judaica brand that you started with your wife, Marie. It's called Hayom. How did that come about and why was it important for you in this moment to create Hayom? So Marie, my wife and I are independent curators and through our lives and being here, we meet a lot of different artists and they've come to Shabbat dinners too and some being very intrigued. We realized that the objects of the Jewish ritual, mezuzah, Chanukiah, that we could find the online or different shops didn't really reflect who we were, but also creative people and artists like challenges. We decided to see if some were interested in making Jewish ritual objects. And not all artists are Jewish, which make things even more interesting. Judaica objects used to be heirloom objects that you would pass on from generation to generation. But nowadays, there's a lot of manufactured objects that maybe don't have as much soul as we would like. And so that's why we started that company. I think all the artists that you collaborate with are truly talented and I love the pieces. I think they're really, really beautiful. What struck me even more was the collaboration with artists that aren't Jewish. For example, at our Shabbat dinner, we saw a Passover Seder plate that was made by an Irish artist, Oliver Jeffers. How did you approach him about that? And what was the process of explaining to him kind of even what a Seder plate was or did he know? He had no clue actually about Passover and he learned about Judaism. I think there's a joke that in Belfast there were 12 Jews or something. So, you know, <laughs> he couldn't really be exposed. But being in New York and coming to our Shabbat dinners and learning about the tradition, he was very intrigued. And so he accepted to give his take on a Seder plate and it makes for a beautiful object about making beautiful objects for beautiful rituals. So just maybe end with asking one other question about your story. So looking back on this story, what was your thoughts going into it and how do you think about it now? Every time we start a project, I don't think there's any expectation. Anything can happen. And the thing is, with art, the beautiful thing is if you fail, it's okay. So you can only be surprise in a good way somehow. At least you need to try. So for Kevin, that he became a friend wasn't expected, of course. Yeah, it's just life, you know, connection. It's just about being open. I think that's very hard sometimes because 
in today's world, we often feel like we know almost exactly what's going to happen in a way, or we haven't opened ourselves up for this element of surprise and positivity. So I really want to thank you for bringing that perspective with your story and for sharing that sentiment. Thank you very much. And I look forward to more recipes. <laughs> okay, you got it. That was Mark Azoulay. You can find his family's Moroccan Shabbat recipes and story on jewishfoodsociety.org. And if you like what you heard, be a mensch and rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Schmalti is produced by the Jewish Food Society in partnership with Pod People and made with love in NYC. Our executive producer is Nama Shafi, and our theme music is by Yuval Sema. Special thanks to the team at Pod People. Rachel King, Matt Sav, Amy Machado, Madison Lesby, Robin Gelfenbein, Carter Wogan, and Morgan Foos. This episode was recorded by WTF Media Studios. I'm your host, Amanda Dell. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. Oh, you